Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. Glad that you're here. We're in week two of what's a new church year for us and a new schedule. And uh, we've had 100 people leave this service, and they're in connection groups now. They'll be coming to another service. And they've done that to make room for us to reach more people in this service. So we're so glad that you're here. And I just want to say a word about our new Wednesday night service for 18 to 29-year-olds called Radius that began last Wednesday. Jake and Tim and Cameron and Todd and others have done a great job with that. They had about 60 or 70 uh, 20-somethings, 18 to 29-year-olds there last Wednesday in the gym. And uh, just great to see those young people worshiping Jesus. And uh, so invite if you have some family or friends in that age group, invite them to come 745 in the gym on Wednesdays to that worship service. Last week I began a new series of sermons going through the book of Nehemiah. The question we're trying to answer is, what does God want me to do with my life? Does God have a purpose? Does he have a will for me? What is that? Well, there's going to be two answers in the book of Nehemiah. There are two halves to the book. The first answer that we're looking at is that God has work for you to do. He wants you to invest your life in his work. And you'll find fulfillment when you begin to serve God. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's why he saved you. Part of the purpose is that now you could serve and work. So you need to find the work that he wants you to do. And it'll give meaning to your daily life. And so these first seven chapters, the word work is 17 times. We're going to see about how Nehemiah found his purpose, the will of God for him in his life, and he did the work that God had called him to. Before we look at Nehemiah, I want to just give you a verse from Jesus from the New Testament that sort of sums up this theme of these first seven chapters of Nehemiah. It's John chapter 4, verse 34. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So Jesus had got this thing that we're trying to get, that what's going to fulfill me? The disciples said, you want something to eat? He said, oh, I'm good. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And so you'll find meaning as you serve God and do his work. Well, how do you find the work that God wants you to do? That was last week, Nehemiah 1. We saw that Nehemiah became aware of a need. The walls of his native city of Jerusalem were broken down. had never been rebuilt since the, the Babylonian destruction. And God put a burden on his heart to do something about that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So what we saw last week. How you discover God's work, his daily assignments is, where the needs of the world and the burdens of your heart intersect. You'll begin to see what God has for you to do. God works through burdens on your heart. All right, after you found some burdens there, after you begin to be sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit, how do you pursue that work that God has for you? How do you find his will, his mission? That's what chapter 2 is about. That's what we want to look together, going through chapter 2, and going to pull out some lessons about pursuing God's mission for our lives. So let's begin in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, the month of Nisan comes right after the month of Toyota in the Persian calendar. That's, that's not true. That's not true. But we do want to pause here because there is something uh, significant here. If you remember chapter 1, verse 1, it was in the month of Kislev that he felt this burden from God. Now it's the month of Nisan. Kislev corresponded to December in our calendar. Nisan to April. 
four months or so have gone by. Here's the first lesson about pursuing God's mission for your life. Be willing to wait. Be willing to wait. Why was it four months? I mean, Nehemiah in chapter 1, he was burdened. He was crying, mourning, fasting, praying. And, that's, and he said, I'm going to, God help me, I'm going to talk to the king about getting these walls rebuilt. It's four months later. Why? I don't know. Maybe the king was out of the palace and this was the first opportunity. Uh, we don't know why. But here's the point. You may be in a waiting pattern in your life. You're trying to follow God and things just aren't happening and, and you're waiting. That's part of the way God works. His timing is not like ours. You remember when the, the Israelites in Egypt called out for a deliverer? Oh, we need a deliverer. You know what God did? He had a baby born named Moses. He had to grow up. Then he had to spend 40 years of seasoning in the desert. It was 80 years before he got back. And we're thinking, God, could you not get the plan going a little faster here? God's timing is not like ours. His timing is perfect. There's going to be a 400-year gap from the time of Nehemiah to the New Testament. 400 years of silence. And then the Bible's going to say, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son. So there's a lesson in this first phrase. In the month of Nisan, four years, four months after. Get ready to wait. God has a plan for you. Don't get discouraged. But God's timing is not the same of ours. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, remember, he's the cupbearer for the king. It's his job to guard the wine, make sure the, cup does, the, the, uh, the food doesn't get poisoned. When wine was brought for him, I took the wine, gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. Remember, Nehemiah is burdened now, but he hadn't sh- the king had not seen that. So the king asked me, Why does your heart look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. Why was he afraid? Well, the king had absolute power. Do you remember when the king's father, Xerxes, you know the story of Esther? And Esther was afraid to go into the king's presence. If he didn't extend that golden scepter, she was doomed, you know? He's got life or death power. Plus, also, Xerxes, this is Artaxerxes, this is the 20th year of his reign. The book of Ezra, the book before this in the Bible, tells letters, has them in the text in Ezra 4, where Artaxerxes in the first year of his reign had commanded that building in Jerusalem be stopped. They built the temple, and then he had commanded that all building be stopped. That's in Ezra 4. So he's afraid, he's going to ask the king to reverse his policy. How's that going to go? He, I was very much afraid, the next verse, but I said to the king. Here's the second lesson about pursuing God's mission for your life. Face your fears. God often calls us to do things outside of our comfort zone. Nehemiah, the cupbearer, is going to have to talk to the king about a reversal of royal policy. Servants don't usually do that. God may be calling you to speak to somebody at work about their faith to take a role in church. God may be burdening your heart, and it's sort of scary the way that God is leading you in ways that you're not comfortable with and you haven't done before. Face your fears. It doesn't mean that you're not afraid when you follow Christ. He says, I was afraid, but I went ahead and said to the king, face those fears. He said to the king, may the king live forever. 
why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So he tells him what's burdening him. The condition of my homeland, the walls broken down. Verse 4, the king said to me, what is it you want? Here's the opportunity. And it says, then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. Oh, here's a great lesson from Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a person of prayer. We're going to see nine prayers in the book of Nehemiah. One of the purposes of this sermon series is to cultivate in us a sense of prayer. I'm teaching a class on Wednesday nights, Introduction to Prayer and Bible Study. And I share about Nehemiah in that, so those of you who have been in that class already know that Nehemiah is a, the first lesson in prayer, is you can pray anytime, anywhere. Nehemiah is in the middle of a conversation with the king, and he prays in the middle of that conversation. The king says, what is it you want? Then I prayed and answered the king. He didn't bow his head and pray, dear Jesus, loving father in the middle of that he didn't use all the catchphrases he just I think he probably said oh God help me now I really need to know to say the right thing here I call these prayers in Nehemiah Nehemiah is full of spontaneous short abrupt prayers I call them Roman candle prayers you know what a Roman candle is Roman candles a firework and it goes right and they're short abrupt bursts sent toward the heaven. And you can pray like that. Uh, if you're not a person of prayer, would you begin to, to, to interlace your daily life with this kind of Nehemiah Roman candle prayer between when the king said, what do you want? And he said, here's what I want. He shot up a Roman candle prayer to God, help me get this right. And if you'd pursue God's mission for your life, would you be a person of prayer? Now we talk in our, in our my class on prayer there needs to be two kinds of prayer that spontaneous interaction with a friend and planned prayer we have a prayer ministry in our church where 144 people have taken an hour every week and they're praying for at least 15 minutes in that hour for our church and our church has experienced more growth and more baptisms and more new members since we began that six months ago than in the history of our church their prayer needs to be a part of our lives both I want to encourage you to have a planned time of prayer. We're trying to help you with some discipline to do that. But also that prayer is a normal part of your daily life that you can shoot those prayers up at any time in the midst of a conversation. Pray for guidance is that third lesson from this chapter that as um, you're seeking to follow God's will for your life, would your life be interlaced with this kind of prayer? I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. What's going to be the response? Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long would your journey take? When will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. 
I also said to him, things were going good here, let's just ask for something else. If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they'll provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. May I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And here's the phrase. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. Isn't that a great phrase? It's twice in this chapter. The gracious hand of God was on me. I want to be going in a direction where the gracious hand of God can be on me. Don't you? So why don't we get in line with God's will like this? Because the gracious hand of God was on Nehemiah because he had overcome his fears and he was stepped out on courage to do the mission God had for him and the gracious hand of God was on him, right? Then here's that promise. and Here's this lesson. Trust God to provide for your needs. When Nehemiah got out of his comfort zone, began to serve God, the gracious hand of God was upon him. Lord, I, folks, I've experienced that in my life. It, it's when I have, have uh, sought to serve God in ways I didn't think I could or stepped out on faith that, that the gracious hand of God is upon you. You can trust God to provide for your needs when you're on mission for him. And maybe you're here and, and, and there's some, uh, you're, you're trying to follow God and you're trying to find his will and his purpose and, and, uh, and, and you're not sure if you can do that. Would you trust God to provide for your needs as Nehemiah did and experience his gracious hand. And so I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, verse 9, and gave them the king's letters, and the king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. So the gracious hand of God, he got, he got timber from the national forest, he got an armed guard, and he got letters for safe passage. Now, verse 10, we're going to come back to, but let me read it to you now. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. We'll come back to them when it tells about, more about them a little later in this chapter. And so, verse 11, I went to Jerusalem. So, 750-mile journey from Susa, modern-day Iran, through what is Iraq, through what is Lebanon, down into Israel. Took him probably three months. It's four months between he, he meets with the king in April. It's August when he arrives for four months for the preparation and the journey. And he gets to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, he rested. And then, verse 12, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There's our key phrase, one of the key phrases in the book. God had put it in my heart to do this for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. So Nehemiah is on a mule or a horse, and he's out uh, at night scoping out the city, doing this survey, not telling others except maybe some who were with him what he was doing. And he says, uh, verse 13, by night I went. So these next verses I don't have on the screen, so I've got a map here. I sort of want to show you. I'll read the verses and maybe give you a visual image of that. Um, so here is uh, a drawing of the city of Jerusalem during Nehemiah's day. And the city of Jerusalem was built on a ridge with two valleys on either side, and so those steep sides of those valleys were natural defenses. Uh, here's the, the ridge, and here's the 
valley coming down through here and the valley here. In my mind, locally, I'll give you something to refer to. You ever been to Old Stone Fort? And you got the Duck River on one side and you got the Little Duck River on the other and they come together and the area in between has those, uh, those walls and that's where the, those ancient peoples built walls as natural defenses on top of those ravines. That's the same kind of thing with, uh, with Jerusalem. You got a valley, on, wider valleys than those ravines at that and a bigger area than Old Stone Fort. But it, it, it's the same kind of thing. So it says in these next verses... Here is the valley gate, and so it says in the next verse, I'll read them, and, uh, and you can watch on the map. It says, he came out through the valley gate, and he's going around counterclockwise around these walls. In this drawing, of course, they're already rebuilt, but at the point where we are in our story now, they're just rubble all around there, and Nehemiah is surveying the rubble, and he comes out this valley gate, it says, it's about 500 yards around to this point. We'll learn later when they're rebuilding the wall. Down the uh, Tyropean Valley. And he comes, it says in the next verse, to the Dung Gate. This is the Dung Gate. You want to guess what they carried out the Dung Gate there? The, so in this area where these two valleys come together, it was called the Valley of Hinnon. That was the garbage dump of Jerusalem. That, by the way, is where the word hell comes from. Jesus talked about Gehenna, or hell, valley of Hinnom. And this is where, out the dung gate, they emptied their latrines. They carried their garbage. You have an open, burning, smelly, worm-infested garbage pit. Jesus says there's a real place of eternal punishment. And you know what it's like, residents of Jerusalem? It is Gehenna. It's the valley of Hinnom. It is like that kind of terrible, terrible place. So, Nehemiah comes around the Tyrophim Valley to the Dung Gate, it says. uh, And the Dung Gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved toward the Fountain Gate and the King's Pool. So now he's going back up this other valley. But it, the Kidron Valley, which, by the way, in the New Testament, where the Garden of Gethsemane was, Jesus came from the Mount of Olives and prayed here. But here he's going back up this valley, and it says, uh, Finally, I turned back. Uh, oh, wait, uh, went to the Fountain Gate, King's Pool. There was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by now, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re entered through the valley gate. So he wanted to go all the way around. And come back in, but when he got somewhere right in here, the terraces had so collapsed, the walls had filled up the valley, the rubble was so dense that he couldn't, even with his mount, get up through here, and he had to turn around, he said, and go back in through the valley gate. Now, what is Nehemiah doing here? What's the point of this? Nehemiah, the lesson for us is when you pursue God's mission, count the cost count the cost. Nehemiah is surveying the damage. He's seeing if it's feasible. He's seeing if he can do this thing. He doesn't want to tell anybody yet. He goes at night, largely by himself, and surveys what's it going to take to do what I believe God has called me to do. And so uh, here's what I want to say to you. When you seek to follow God, you need to count the cost. You see, I, I, I very much want people to come and follow Christ. I'm going to give an invitation in a moment. 
and we're going to invite you, and it's as simple as you walking down one of these aisles and praying and repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Jesus to become a Christian. It's a simple thing to do, but I don't want you to do that lightly. As much as I want you to do that, I don't want you to do it flippantly or casually or lightly because although it's easy to become a follower of Christ, it's a big thing to become a follower of Christ. And Jesus says that nobody should follow me or seek to pursue the mission that I have for their life without doing what Nehemiah is doing. You count the cost. Let me show you. I'll skip to the New Testament and show you that for a second. We'll come back here. I want to read to you Luke chapter 14, verse 25 large crowds were traveling with Jesus. This is a point when he was really popular. So what would he say to these large crowds? This is great. Come on in. And turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Wow. Bummer downer, right? Wow. What's Jesus saying? Are we supposed to hate our wife and kids? No, not literally hate them. Jesus has told us to love everyone, love our neighbor as ourselves. But he's using strong hyperbolic language here to say, this is a big deal to follow me. It is so big. You've got to put me above even those closest to you. I've got to be first in your life. You count the cost before you follow me. And the next verse says, verse, uh, still in Luke 14, 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. This is what Nehemiah is about. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Now, finishing doesn't depend on your strength. God's going to help you. But you need to be serious about following Christ. You need to be serious about coming to him as Savior or serving him. Nehemiah is counting the cost. Jesus says, this has got to be big in your life. And as much as we want you to come and follow Christ, you can be baptized next Sunday when we baptize others. But don't do that on a whim. Don't do that casually. This is big stuff. This is first place in your life. And same thing true serving him. Nehemiah says, God's called me to this. What's it going to take in my life? Because this is serious. Back in Nehemiah, he's, he's surveyed the ruins. And it says in verse 16, we've got it back on the screen, I think now, the officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or to the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. And then I said to them, the next day or sometime after that, then he gets them together and he meets with them and says, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be in disgrace. I told them about the, here's that phrase again, gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. There's our key word. We've had it twice in those verses uh, here. They began this good work. Here's the next application about pursuing God's mission for your life. Network. Network. Find other people who are doing the same thing and join them. Nehemiah, he surveys the damage alone, but when he's ready to do the work, he builds a network of others. Folks, in our lives, 
this is the role of the church. This is why you need to be in a church. God intended, he put a burden on Nehemiah's heart, but Nehemiah then joined with other people to do that work. God has a purpose for you in his church. And he doesn't mean for you just to live your life by yourself. He intends for you to network, to join with others, imperfect people. Sometimes you don't want to be, you think, oh, it would be easier just to stay home and not have to deal with. You need to be with other people imperfect people sharing that work that's why we're part of a church that's God's plan that's why we're part of a denomination we have a thing called the cooperative program why why do we join at a denomination because God has called us to network to work with others we need to be together in this work of reaching the world for Christ and so we join with other similar churches to try to share together that's the purpose of that and then it says in verse 19 back to old Sanballat But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Now let me uh, me share an aside here before we get to the main point of this. I want to share with you, here is uh, something where we have evidence of the reliability of the word of God. Because these three officials, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, and the roles that are listed here, have all been confirmed in archaeology. People say, you know, the Bible, oh, it was just, it, it was, it's full of errors, it's written by people and revised and all this. Let me tell you, the truth is that what was said in the Bible thousands of years ago, in recent years, has been confirmed over and over again by archaeology. About a century ago on the island of Elephantine in the Nile River in Egypt were discovered what are called the Elephantine papyri. That is, pieces of paper, but because of that dry climate, nowhere else in the world would they survive, but they can survive in that low humidity of Egypt. And so papyri unearthed from the time of Nehemiah, and they mention Sanballat, the governor of Syria, the Horonite. Confirming, I'm saying, and also there's been a, a silver vase with the name Geshem the Arab on it. And so these were three governors, Sanballat north of Jerusalem, uh, Tobiah east across the Jordan, and Geshem to the south. These are the, and the only thing else, the Mediterranean seas to the west. So these are all your neighbors, and they're ganging up against him. But my aside is, before we get to this point is, You can trust the Word of God. It's proven true in little details like that, historical accuracies, and so it lends credence that the message of the Bible is true as well. And so when you hear critics say, oh, the Bible is full of errors, here's one thing you can point to of how specifically, tangibly, concretely, the truth of the Bible is confirmed. Archaeologists confirmed the exact words of verse 19. Well, here's the lesson about this. Expect opposition. This is going to be a major theme in the book of Nehemiah. Old Sanballat and his friends are going to make Nehemiah's life miserable. And look what it says they do. They mock him and they ridicule him. And then they try to twist his motives, question his motives. So you're building a wall. You probably want to rebel against the king. And Nehemiah's probably saying, no, no, no. The king's giving me letters. He's giving me permission. But see, they're starting these rumors this mocking, this ridicule. Whenever you try to serve God, 
you're going to experience some opposition. I have to admit that when I was a young Christian, that sort of surprised me. I really thought when I was a young pastor, if I'm trying to follow God, everybody's going to be happy with me. And you know what? I found out it wasn't true. I found out you could be trying to serve God and get mocked and ridiculed and your motives questioned. And it's going to be true more and more in our culture. This is one of the reasons I'm going through Nehemiah. This is a major theme, and we're really going to need this in days ahead. People who are seeking to try to follow God, your motives are going to be questioned. You're going to be mocked and ridiculed on various fronts. We'll talk about some of those as we go through the book. But for now, just expect that. It's, we're in a warfare, spiritual warfare. And so when you try to serve God, you get involved in church, you do things for God, and then you encounter all kind of trouble, and you just are tempted to say, well, this is not worth it. I thought if I was serving God, things would just go well. The gracious hand of God is on you. You're also going to experience opposition. Uh, just ex- expect that. It's part of the, that we're all fallible, we're all, none of us is perfect, and there's a spiritual force of Satan as well, and you put those together, and there's going to be some opposition. But let me share one more thing with you. Be confident the purposes of God will succeed. And the last verse says, Nehemiah says, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We are his servants, we'll start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim of historic right to it. Oh, Nehemiah, pretty, pretty courageous right there. Nehemiah, in spite of the odds, in spite of the opposition, nobody's done this in 140 years. The neighboring governors don't want this city rebuilt. It will be a threat to them. And so they're opposed to him. And Nehemiah confidently says, the God who called us to this will give us success. Let me tell you something. When you follow Christ and you serve God, you're on a winning team. You can be confident that you're aligning your, per- your life with a purpose that will succeed. There are three things that are going to last forever. The Son of God, the Word of God, the Church of God. Psalm 2, God said, I've installed my king. You leaders, the Son of God reigns. The Word of God, grass withers and the fire fades, but the Word of God stands forever. And the Church of God, Jesus said, On this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You want to be a part of something to succeed, link your life to the church and to the word of God and to Jesus Christ. Would you stand together with me? We're going to sing a song of invitation. I want to invite you to be a follower of Jesus. I don't want you to do it flippantly or lightly, but I want to appeal to you. This is the life that will bless you. The gracious hand of God will be upon you. Would you come to follow him? Maybe you need a church home. Invite you in either way just to walk forward and meet me or another pastor here as we sing.